Hello and welcome. You're listening to Connected and Ready, an ongoing conversation about innovation, resilience and our capacity to succeed, brought to you by Microsoft. I'm Gemma Milne. I'm a technology journalist and author, and I'm going to be exploring trends around how companies are adapting to a disrupted world and preparing for tomorrow. We're going to speak to the innovators who are bringing products, operations and people together in new ways. In today's episode, I'm chatting to inclusion strategist Ruchika Tulshian all about what organisations should know and be doing to not only build diverse teams, but also inclusive, equitable workplaces. We explore how leaders can break through patterns of bias, get their infrastructure right, as well as ensure equal access, and adopt more inclusive practices. And we uncover the benefits of inclusive cultures for organisational growth and innovation beyond simply being the right thing to do. Before we start, I want to thank all of you listeners out there. If you have a topic or a person you'd love to hear on the show, please send us an email at connectedandready at microsoft.com. A brief note that we'll be off next week, but we'll return with a new episode on July 14th. We're so thankful for you all listening. Now, on with the episode. Ruchika, thank you so much for coming and joining us on the show today. Why don't we start with some introductions? Tell me a little bit about yourself, what you do and what you've been working on of late. Wonderful. Hi, Gemma. It's so wonderful to be here with you. I am a inclusion strategist. I run a company called Candor out of Seattle, but it is a global consulting firm. I also write for the New York Times and Harvard Business Review on inclusive, equitable workplaces. And I'm very excited to let people know that I've been working hard at my next book. It's called Inclusion on Purpose. It's about the experience of women of color in the workplace and how to create more inclusive, equitable workplaces. I'm sure you're hearing a theme and that's going to be published next spring. So February, 2022. How exciting. Congratulations. And that we'll look forward to having a read of it when indeed it does come out. So let's dive straight into these topics that you've brought up around equity and inclusion. And of course, the workplace. These themes, these topics, these words have long been goals and things that have popped up in discourse around organisations and the future of work. What would you say are the most common places where inequity and exclusion has been showing up in the workplace? What I'll say is I'm really glad that these words are actually becoming uh, well-known and in some ways they're trendy and they're buzzwords. And I'm really, really thankful for that because when I started working on creating inclusive workplaces, when I started researching what were some of the common reasons for exclusion and inequity, at that time, these words weren't part of popular lexicon and I'd speak with leaders and, you know, there was a very sort of basic understanding of it, which I think has now changed. But essentially, when we look at some of the areas where inequity and exclusion show up in our workplaces today, One of the biggest ways is through racial inequity, and that's through decades, if not centuries, of exclusion and historical policy, which have separated people from each other. So there's certainly that gender bias and gender inequality continues to be a huge challenge worldwide. And I think related to that, there are a number of various, I would say, identities where people feel like they're not able to bring their full selves to work, where they have to hide it or they have to change it, which may not be immediately visible. And that's folks who are members of the LGBTQ 
community, people who have mental and invisible physical disabilities. But we know that people with physical disabilities also often feel excluded in the workplace. So there are a variety of different ways that this shows up in the workplace. And to me, this tells me that there's tremendous opportunity for change. Amazing. It's great to hear this sort of um, optimism in your voice around these things, which can be can be pretty difficult. But you mentioned um, earlier on that these words, you know, they previously weren't really part of the popular lexicon. And now, in a great way, are there and are being discussed. What would you say has led to that change? I mean, I think we've, we've all seen what's been going on in the news over the last year. I think lockdown has almost heightened our awareness of, of what's going on in the news, probably just because we're watching it more as opposed to going out and seeing people. What would you say is the kind of reason or some of the, I guess, points of change that has resulted in these words and these ideas and these goals being far more popular, at least on the face of it, when it comes to changing work? Yeah, I think the coronavirus pandemic is a great example of obviously a very traumatic, very challenging time in history. And I think we're all going to look back and as especially in the Western nations, as more of us are moving back towards a new normal, but some sort of semblance of normal compared with what the last one year plus has looked like. I think it really, even for for people who've had a more cursory understanding of what inequity or exclusion or bias looks like, the last one and a half years has really laid that bare for, I think, people who in the past perhaps were immune from some of the impacts of, again, gender bias, racial exclusion, uh, you know, some of the other socioeconomic exclusion, etc. And so I think the last one year plus, we cannot deny that our workplaces have been created very, very inequitably. We've all been touched by it in some way, shape or form, whether that could be personally falling ill or having people around us fall sick from the coronavirus or unfortunately even pass away. It could be access to technology as we uh, moved into a remote work environment and seeing the people who are able to even move into a remote work environment and still have some sort of normalcy versus those who had no choice and had to go out and be in the workplace and put themselves in very, very hazardous and dangerous situations. We certainly saw with suddenly women's work and caregiving work, and I say women's work in the sense that unfortunately, you know, close to worldwide, close to 90% of caregiving is done by women. And so for a large part, caregiving has been resigned to be women's work. It certainly is not, but we've certainly seen how caregiving and the challenges around caregiving were laid bare in this pandemic. Um, And so I think that I would definitely credit the pandemic as one of the key reasons for it. The other thing that I want to add is without the racial justice movement of last year, And what has been inspiring, again, you'll note that I am cautiously optimistic, but what was inspiring is really around the world, I was starting to have these conversations. I think the virus and us being, uh, you know, moved indoors really gave me a chance to connect and reconnect with a lot of my clients and friends and family around the world, virtually, albeit, but still. And what I started realizing is actually the a racial reckoning movement around Black Lives Matter last year in the United States did seem to spark a global movement for change. And suddenly I was hearing from people, contacts I have all around the world talking about how they had seen it locally show up and manifest, how people were talking about how local situations, even if it wasn't Black Lives Matter, 
but how local inequities and especially racial, caste, religious inequities were playing out. And again, for the first time, I really heard this desire for change in a way that in many, you know, for a long time, I thought it was very latent. I felt like there were movements on the ground around the world trying to create more equity, but really heard it come to the fore, heard it speak in the mainstream arena in a way that I hadn't in all these years prior. Amazing. Let's take some of those, I guess, broad cultural points, ideas and challenges and and opportunities as well that you've brought up. And let's turn to now looking specifically at the workplace itself. Take a leader who is, you know, as, as they should be wanting to make change and saying, you know, I want to try and ensure that bias and exclusion is not um, a part of my workplace, is not a part of my team. How do you even begin to think about breaking out of old patterns? How do you even determine where you have a blind spot as a well-meaning leader? That's a great question, Gemma. And I will say that the number one premise I have around my work is inclusion is leadership and leadership is inclusion. And if we think of leadership as a way to motivate and excite our people, influence people around us to bring their best selves to work, specifically if we're thinking about workplace leadership, then inclusion is the most key part of that, right? Because we have to sort of identify voices and perspectives that have historically been left out and invite those perspectives in and really inspire those perspectives in the work that we do. So for me, I think at the core of good leadership is inclusive leadership. And that's something that I say all the time. Now, I think when it comes to starting in your workplace, I think, again, a big part of being an inclusive leader actually requires you to step back and take stock and not rush into action. Sometimes there's action bias is very real, where certainly, again, related to the virus pandemic last year or the beginning of it, and then also the racial justice movement. I saw a lot of leaders feeling like they needed to make immediate statements, they needed to make immediate change. And I'm all for change, but I also think it's very important to be able to step back. And even though it's uncomfortable, stop and really think about again, whose perspectives are missing, whose voices do we need at the table, and how do we ensure that we bring them in? And in many ways, how do we create a brand new table so that everyone has an opportunity to lead? Dynamics 365 is helping businesses of all sizes unify their data and create a digital first culture. With next generation ERP and CRM business applications, Employees at every level can reason over data, predict trends, and make proactive, more informed decisions. Request a live demo of Dynamics 365 today by following the link in the episode description. So for anyone who's maybe not come across the term before, or perhaps has heard many different versions of what it might mean, what does inclusive leadership mean to you? What's your sort of definition? Yeah, great question. To me, really, at its core, inclusive leadership means bringing in a variety of perspectives and actually going out of your way to ensure that perspectives that have historically been overlooked, have historically been actually left out of the conversation, are brought in, right? So inclusive leadership is, in many ways, empathetic leadership, looking at where there have been barriers in the past and ensuring that everyone feels comfortable, heard, and like their voices matter, like their contributions are being heard. Amazing. That's great. And and thinking specifically about 
the current situation we're in where, and I'm obviously referring specifically to more white collar workers here, office workers, people who are able to to work from home with a laptop, thinking about hybrid work models that we've been experiencing so much over the last year and a half, we've suddenly have to think about not only how to lead diverse teams, but also how to lead diverse remote teams working on various different kinds of projects that probably have completely changed in many ways as a result of the fact that the way we work has changed. So what should leaders be mindful of thinking about an example such as this when it comes to then thinking about how do you be inclusive, how do you ensure that everybody in the team is there, has that voice, is considered at the table, as you say? Yeah, that's a great question, Gemma. And actually, I'm very inspired by Harvard Business School professors, uh, Sadal Neely's work, and she has an amazing new book out called Remote Work Revolution. And Professor Dr. Neely has for years studied, she studied remote work even before it became something that we all talked about. And then, you know, I had a nice conversation with her a few months before a book came out. And I said, you know, were you just at the right place at the right time? Or have you been working on this for years? And she said, I've been working on this for two decades. And I kind of had the book ready in my mind. And suddenly the pandemic happened. And that was a opportune time to have a book out on this topic. But essentially, so much of Dr. Neely's work has focused on how do you ensure that everyone has access to the technology they need to succeed. And I really saw this firsthand in my own life. I also teach at Seattle University. I'm a part-time professor there. And it became very clear as we were moving to remote classes that some of my students had a great setup, right? They had a wonderful space that they could dial into classes from. They had all the technology. They had the latest laptop. They had strong Wi-Fi connections. And then it became very clear that there was really the differentiation between the haves and the have-nots really around in the same area, right? In the same city. And so that became something that was very clear to me that as we want to enable workers to work really well in this remote hybrid work environment, we need to ensure that everyone has access to the same technology. We need to ensure that if there are gaps, that it is our responsibility to fix that. And I think as we think about the more tactical things on creating an inclusive work environment, again, it's having norms such as ensuring everyone gets their turn to speak, right? We all use the mute function more liberally. We all try and make sure that we sort of tease out the voices that are often a little more quiet. You know, what do you think? Would love to hear your perspective. And one of the best things I'm hearing about creating a more inclusive work environment in the virtual world is a lot more people who've traditionally felt nervous or felt like they weren't able to be heard in an in-office environment are actually telling me that they feel much more comfortable speaking up in the virtual environment. You know, again, where there's a little more, those tools exist, such as raising your virtual hand or actually getting off mute and saying, I have a quick point and then waiting your turn. I think we're starting to see that people are actually sharing space a lot more equitably in a way that sometimes in the in-office environment, I think we just sort of defaulted to the norms. So there's a lot of potential here to create inclusive environments in the hybrid work environment. You mentioned there specifically technology and and sort of various different levels or situations of access when it comes to tools, information, but also, you know, the actual hardware, internet connection and things like this. Going even broader than that, you also mentioned space and, you know, workspace. And obviously we're... 
there's an argument to be made that we are in a current situation that's not the same as remote work. It's working from home during a pandemic, as, as a lot of people have pointed out on the show when we've interviewed them. But by the same token, moving forward, there should still be that opportunity for people to work from home regardless of what space they currently have. So how can leaders think about how to utilise technology and, and sort of getting their workplace infrastructure right in that broad sense that isn't just about making sure somebody has a nice laptop, but really the whole environment, technological and environmental works. This is a great point because I think what we're starting to find as more and more organizations are making announcements of what the future is going to look like, do you have to come in to the office or not? I really hope more leaders think about this from an equity and inclusion lens, right? And equity really at its core says, what are the historical barriers that have left people out of society or on the fringes of society or marginalized? And how can we identify those barriers, dismantle them and create a more equitable society? At its core, that's what equity talks about. So it doesn't say everyone needs the same thing and that's it, right? It actually says that because of historical barriers, people from different communities will need different things to even get to the sort of a level playing field. And that's why I think taking an equity focused lens is so important here. And I think even this idea of how do you come back to the workplace or to the in-office workplace, as you correctly said, we've all been working. It's not like even people who've been working from home, it isn't that they're not working, right? We've all been working from home and it's been a very, for many of us, it's been a really challenging situation when you add the additional lenses of if you're a caregiver. Um, so, you know, and if you add those additional lenses, you know, if you're a caregiver or you have health concerns or health issues of your own, you add those additional layers and the last one year plus has been really challenging. So I think as we think about bringing workers back to the office, I really hope that leaders can trust their people and ensure that as the last year has proven, you can work remotely. You do not have to be in an in-office environment all the time to be productive. I hope that we don't take the lessons and throw them out the window and expect people to be back in the office five days a week, etc., the one last thing I will say is I really hope leaders think about how do we determine our workers' productivity or contributions without falling prey to those same biases of who's in the office, right? If you're in the office, you're automatically more productive. You're automatically more engaged. You're automatically more, um, you know, committed to this organization. And I really hope we don't fall prey to that because I'm starting to see those sorts of messages flying around again. And we know that data really show that for a lot of workers, especially those with additional responsibilities like caregiving, you know, it could be personality related introvert versus extrovert, et cetera. But we are seeing a very, very large percentage of people who've been surveyed by various research centers have found that people are not really rushing to go back into the office. So I hope leaders take this seriously and think about how do we engage everyone equitably. So when talking about access to technology and particularly from a leadership perspective, what sort of practices do leaders have to do to ensure that they really do have that equitable access? So firstly, one thing that has been really change-worthy for me is just making more use of the closed captioning function within meetings 
and making sure that as the availability of speech to text and actually Microsoft has really enabled speech to text to be really available throughout meetings and throughout various of its products, which is amazing to see. But really having closed captioning has been a real change. And especially in some of the environments where I've been leading and I've ensured there's closed captioning in advance, people have come back later and said, you know, thank you so much for ensuring that you put in this perspective and made it accessible for everyone. So that definitely is one way. The other that I think is important is sending information in advance. And again, something that at the moment might feel like it's no big deal, especially because I think a lot of our workplaces reward and prioritize people who can think quickly on their feet, who have all the, have all the ideas already in their head, or if they're sent something at the spur of the moment, they can react to it immediately. Whereas actually there are so many people for a variety of reasons who would really benefit from having information sent in advance of a meeting with an agenda. And again, can can ensure that people who may have spotty Wi-Fi service or who may be hard of hearing or other hearing difficulties can fully participate. Another way that Dr. Sadal Neely really talks about is having extra communication when you have virtual meetings. And again, tools that are really helpful are not only just the video conferencing software, but really ways to connect with people offline, not only through email, but maybe through other ways like chat functions where you can really follow up and have that multiple touch points during that situation or during a meeting where it's not only you're talking on video, but being able to follow up and check in, you know, does everyone, did everyone hear the same thing? Did everyone come away with the same information? Here's what we're working on next, right? Because some people may be able to really absorb well during the virtual video meeting. Others may really benefit from having that available in a follow-up email or chat sort of situation. And then the very last thing that I would say is really beginning meetings and other ways to convene with acknowledging everyone in the room, not just those with high status or privilege, not just people who are already powerful or leaders or people that everyone always sort of notices in the meetings, but everyone. And I think virtual meetings really helps us keep us on track for that, where we can really check in with people. I also think this will become even more important as we think about a hybrid work environment or as more of us work towards teams where some of us may be in person in the office or some of us may be in a different country or in a different location dialing in virtually and that hybrid environment and making sure again, not only the people who are there in person get the meeting time and the acknowledgement and, you know, all of that, but really everyone, no matter where they're dialing in from, whether they're in person or whether they're remote, they also have an opportunity to be recognized and acknowledged. And when it comes to knowledge, information, learning in organizational contexts, what are some of the tools or approaches that you think are a great way and, and technologies as well that companies and organizations can utilize to ensure that there really is equitable access to, to knowledge and learning? 
Great question. Any place where folks can centrally convene is really important. And that could be, you know, a channel where everyone has, you know, both a chat function as well as opportunities to access documents and other things that are available and necessary for the conversation and for team productivity. Again, I think one thing that sometimes gets overlooked in a more hybrid and remote work environment is the reality that not everyone has access to the same information. So being able to constantly follow up, being able to ensure that there's a way that folks are convening regularly is really important. And there's a lot of talk of serendipity in the workplace and how do we, in previous in the in-office environments, people would just naturally bump into each other and have those water cooler conversations. And one thing that I'm seeing my clients do really well, the ones who really focus on inclusive leadership, is create those serendipitous moments virtually. You know, it's not as truly serendipitous as just bumping into someone in the kitchen or over the water cooler. But I think what's been great is having time on the calendar where, you know, it can be an open office virtual meeting where folks can sort of stream in and out. And actually, I think what we find, again, speaking from an equity, racial equity, gender equity perspective, I often find that people who are overlooked or are historically underrepresented in the workplace, many folks like that often attend these meetings, you know, which in an in-office environment, research shows that they don't always feel as comfortable stepping in if there's a water cooler conversation happening. I can say that as a woman of color in my past office environment, sometimes I'd see the men in the office having, you know, a great serendipitous conversation, which turned into some sort of team related activity later on. Um, and I didn't really feel welcome in that, but I would definitely feel a lot more welcome if I knew leaders were having these open offices where everyone can just come in as they need. You know, I can speak up if I want to, or maybe I just want to listen to this one and see how it goes. But I think having those moments for folks to connect even informally outside of scheduled meetings is really important. I would love to hear some, maybe perhaps some examples or either you've seen in practice or have been raised as um, perhaps opportunities of inclusive behaviours and practices that leaders can prioritise. You know, you mentioned earlier on even just, you know, encouraging the use of the mute button so that more people can talk and feel comfortable talking. That might seem like quite a small thing, but with a change of mindset, I'm sure that can have quite big repercussions. So I'd love to hear some more of these these examples of behaviors and practices. Yeah. And what I'll say is it's actually in the quote unquote, small things and small behaviors that we see the greatest change. So I was reading a pretty tough to read Harvard Business Review article a couple of weeks ago about what Asian American employees need from their leaders right now. And the number one thing that came up again and again is a lot of Asian American employees in the United States really wished that their leaders would take a stance against some of the anti-Asian violence and anti-Asian sentiment that we are seeing an, an unfortunate rise off here in the United States. And they also wish that their leaders would check in with them more often. How are you doing today? Are you feeling okay? You're always welcome here. Your voice is always, always, you know, welcome here. You belong here. And, um, you know, a lot of uh, employees express that they were not hearing that sentiment, that they were feeling really left out. And so I think that 
one of the biggest that we can really make change as an inclusive leader is be more empathetic to the reality that again, not everyone is experiencing this moment in time or this, in fact, this entire moment in time in quite the same way. Again, back to this idea that some people had a great space to transform into or even perhaps had a home office. They had all the technology they needed. Maybe they didn't have caregiving duties and actually, you know, working from home was just a great comfort. And for a lot of others, it was a huge adjustment. There was a lot of stress and pain and trauma associated with this moment. So I really hope that as leaders think about the next steps, they think about how do we check in with our employees more often? How do we create the space and the empathy for them to bring their best selves to work? If they need time off, offer it liberally. If deadlines need to be pushed back, push them back liberally. I think those are some of the ideas um, that come to mind. Another one that I think, again, seemingly small, but has huge repercussions is getting people's names right. And one of the things that I love about the virtual environment, something I actually do on quite a few of the platforms I use is I actually use a name pronouncer. So it actually says, it spells out my name. My name is Ruchika. It's not very, very common. I actually spell it out in my virtual name in, um, in virtual environments. And I found that to be transformative because I remember being in person meetings, feeling really nervous, you know, oh my gosh, are they going to butcher my name? What's the right time to correct them? Can I interrupt a leader? Can I interrupt someone with more status or in this hierarchical situation? Can I, can I interrupt the person while they're speaking? Whereas, you know, having it available in a more virtual environment is just wonderful because I can spell out my name and most people remember that or most people will abide by it. And that's wonderful. So I think, again, taking the time to get people's names right, taking the time to understand, you know, that people are in different situations right now, I think that would really go a long way. Amazing. Let's talk then uh, or build a little bit on something you said earlier, which I thought was really fascinating, was this idea of the action bias sometimes being the thing that kind of is a barrier (laughs) to good action, shall we say, or good change or useful change for those that are asking for it. How can leaders then... I guess, what what is the next step, right? They've listened to you speak. They think this makes complete sense. I want to step back. I want to listen. I want to be empathetic. But I also want to work out what these small things are, quote unquote, as well as some of the bigger things, some of the policies perhaps that I need to start thinking about lobbying or making change within my organisation. So what would you advise people listening to do next from a real sort of, I don't want to say actionable perspective because we just said action bias, but from a real sort of step-by-step way for people to really make more sense of it? Gemma, that's a great question. And I always say that there is such a power in anonymous surveys, because especially if you are one of the statistical and numerical minorities in your organizations, that could be you, you could identify as a woman in a, in a largely male dominated organization or team, or you could be one of the very few women of color or person of color or black people in your organization. Again, statistically, this is what data shows in many industries. And so what we'd want to do is as we take input and seek input from people, we want to make sure that they feel safe, essentially talking about exactly what they would need, what would empower them to bring their full selves to work. And so I think there's tremendous power in using anonymous surveys. 
and really checking in with your people that way. A lot of the organizations I advise, a lot of my clients over the last three to six months have launched anonymous surveys where they really try and figure out how are people feeling about whether it was the ongoing pandemic and the challenges or the opportunities that they saw in the hybrid remote work is more the remote work environment when clients were doing surveys six months ago. And now as we return to some sort of in the office hybrid model, again, back to what are people going through? What are people facing? What do they need to enable them to bring them their best selves to work? And so I really think that there's a lot of power in stepping back again, listening without defensiveness. What do I need? It could be that I, as a leader, am desperate to go back into the office. I would love to be there five days a week. And if it's safe to do it, I would love that. And it's really important to also hear from the perspectives that say, actually, going back five days a week is not going to be tenable for me anymore. And it may even make me want to leave this organization. And again, there was a study done by um, a social media company called Blind. And essentially, they found that there was, I think, something like three quarters of people they surveyed said that they would rather take a pay cut rather than go back to the office five days a week. So I think that we need to hear those perspectives and not have our judgment clouded by what our perspective on the issue is. And building from that, taking the next step from something like a survey, an anonymous survey, as you you mentioned, um, first of all, of course, an anonymous survey can show that there's a breadth of issues and answers to questions that might on the face of it seem um, contradictory. For instance, some people say, I want to stay at home and other people saying, I want to be in the office. And, you know, it sounds like an obvious answer, be flexible. But how do leaders make sure that they don't just do a survey and get all these answers and then feel overwhelmed by what they're being told and maybe take the wrong action first or try and do too much at once or so on and so forth? How would you how do you advise your clients to to go one step further beyond just getting that input? So the number one is I always talk about humility and communication. So when an organization, when a, when the management team of an organization have run a survey or any sort of other way to collect input and data on what to do next, I'll always say communicate with humility. Say, you know, I really appreciate that you've taken the time to fill out the survey. We've received a lot of information, some of it conflicting and contradictory And we're going to really look at it seriously and strategize on next steps over time. These were the results and we're going to immediately start moving in this direction is not quite the way to go. So the clients I've worked with have really looked at that data over a couple of weeks, really thought about it, really started identifying patterns and then taking steps based on that. The other thing I want to say is, especially when you see conflicting information, such as I really want to go back into the office versus I really don't want to go back into the office. What that tells me is what needs to be strengthened is the way that teams communicate and work with each other so that to a large extent, people can have both and can prioritize both, right? How do we enable the remote and hybrid work environment to continue working even if some people go back into the office full time and some people are are back in the office just for a little while and for a set number of days a week or they have much more flexibility around when and how they want to show up in the in-office environment. So I think improving team communication and putting mechanisms in place to ensure that people 
are communicating with each other, no matter where they dial in from, is very important. Again, back to this concept of ensuring that as you look at how people are being, um, you know, performance evaluations, performance reviews, feedback is being collected on employees' work, it's really important to ensure that you are being equitable in that as well. So that may mean, and some of my clients are redesigning some of their performance review systems, right? So it doesn't mean that this person comes into the office five days a week and therefore they're much more committed than this person who would rather work from home five days a week, right? And how do we ensure that we're evaluating people's contributions and their productivity beyond how often they are in the office? Because I know that's where we see skews in gender bias, right? We see that traditionally men are more likely to want to come back into the office. And I think some of the early research is showing women or large percentage of female identifying workers are not ready to come back into the workplace full time. And then we break it down even further by race, by other, there was a study done by Future Forum, which is a think tank from Slack. And it found, I think if I'm not wrong, it said 97% of black workers are not ready to come back into the in-office environment. So, you know, only 3% of Black workers are ready to come back into the in-office environment. And I think that's something that leaders really need to look at closely. Let's zoom out for a second and talk a little bit about, um, I mean, it sounds like a kind of an obvious or maybe a little bit of a, a daft question, but what would you say are the biggest benefits and outcomes of fostering this inclusive and equitable workplace? And, and let me just clarify why I probably sound uncomfortable asking this question. It seems like you should just do things because it's the right thing to do, right? But when we're talking about these things through the lens of business and growth and innovation and organisations, we often feel that you have to put it in the language of profit or growth or so on and so forth. And I'm curious about how you make the case, shall we say, beyond simply saying, for goodness sake, it's just the right thing to do. Yeah, I'm glad you're expressing that discomfort because I will say that for a long time, I took the opposite tactic. It became very clear to me that, you know, when I talked about this being a moral issue or the right thing to do, that a lot of business leaders would, you know, sort of nod their head and then not want to really work on it. And again, that's not because they were bad people, but because the larger priorities of the organization were different, you know, profit, you know, growth, innovation, etc. And what I will say is that time and time again, study after study after study shows such a deep correlation, such a deep overlap between organizations that are diverse and inclusive. So not just organizations where there might be a diversity of people, of racial diversity or gender diversity at the bottom levels, but really at the very senior levels where they feel included and welcome. McKinsey did a great study years ago, actually more than five years ago, which found that organizations, and these were global organizations, that had gender diversity in senior leadership outperformed their peers by 15%, and those that had racial diversity in senior leadership. And again, I want to emphasize not just bringing a plethora of people in at lower levels and then the upper levels looking the same, but really racial diversity, ethnic diversity in senior leadership would outperform their peers by at least 35%. And this is profitability. So we really know that there's great power to be had. There's great innovation. There's great productivity. And to me, it's surprising that so many organizations and so many leaders would leave 
that level of money, that level of growth on the table. And I, and I want to believe, and this is really what I found in my next book, that I don't think that there are nefarious actions always in play. I think there might be some people who are opposed to diversity, equity, and inclusion, you know, for a variety of reasons. But I think more often and more what I have seen as being the case is leaders really want to make a change. They just don't know how. And that's where I think we are going to start seeing a big shift, especially as we strategize on how to return to this, you know, hybrid slash in-office environment for people who obviously who have had the privilege to work remotely over the last year. I think we have a tremendous opportunity to do this right and do this very thoughtfully, do it in a way that ensures that we create a very equitable and inclusive work environment. Again, not just because it's the right thing to do, but because it really makes business sense too. As you think about the future, what is it that excites you the most that you think is really going to enable more inclusive work, inclusive cultures, and, and frankly, just better workplaces? This is such a great question. And I think what really inspires me and what what excites me really is that I'm starting to see a lot more leaders and people be rewarded for thinking in an inclusive, equitable way, right? And I'm starting to see uh, actually consumers really vote with their dollars, vote on social media in many ways, and really demand that, hey, we want to work with organizations and we want to support and be aligned with organizations that are aligned with our values. As employees, we want to work for organizations that take a social justice stance. I was really surprised to see a study that found something like 60 plus percent of employees expect their employers to take a stance on social justice issues. And so what gives me excitement and what motivates me is I just think this isn't a fringe issue anymore. And there's a lot more work being done on employee activism and employer activism, quote unquote. And when I think about it, I now say to myself, or this is how I feel, that I don't think we can take a passive approach to any of this anymore. Our employees are customers, um, people who have deeply believed in us, our brands, and now investors are all really vying for a world which is much more inclusive and equitable than before. Ruchika, thank you so much for ending us on a positive note, but also taking us through so many great concrete examples and calls to action and practices and so on and so forth, as well as really making that broader case for everyone who's listening. I can't imagine anybody who's tuned in will want to do anything but go away and start trying to make that change without, of course, succumbing to that action bias that you mentioned at the beginning. So Ruchika, thank you so much for coming and joining us on the show. Thank you, Gemma. That's it for this week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Just a reminder, we're going to be on a break next week and we'll be back with the next new episode on July 14th. You can find out more about Ruchika's work and indeed some of the broader themes we discussed today in the show notes. If you enjoyed the episode, please do take a few moments to rate and review the podcast. It really helps other people discover the show. And don't forget to hit subscribe and tune in next time to continue our conversation about innovation, resilience and our capacity to succeed. Dynamics 365 delivers next-generation ERP and CRM business applications, helping employees at every level reason over data, predict trends, and make proactive, more informed decisions. Request a live demo of Dynamics 365 today by following the link in the episode description.